A reading from the book of Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died reading from the Gospel of Luke 6, 17 through 26. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. The word of God for the people of God. As we prepare for this morning's sermon, would you pray with and for me? Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're in the third week of our sermon series that we're calling One With. 
in which we talk through the prayer that we pray every time we gather to receive communion, every time we gather around God's table, we pray that by God's Spirit, we would be one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at His heavenly banquet. It's a revolutionary prayer. It's an important one. This feels like an important time to be talking about this prayer, both in terms of our divided culture and even because of divisions within the United Methodist Church. There is a specially called General Conference, which will take place this coming weekend as we consider what it means to be one church devoted to Jesus and in love with God's people, especially as we disagree over our understandings of human sexuality. Now, if it is possible, I am even more tired of talking about General Conference than you are about hearing about it. So let me just say at the front end, I want you to pray for the United Methodist Church this week. One bishop I know has encouraged her annual conference to to set an alarm on their phones for 2.23 every day and to pray from 2.23 to 2.26. This corresponds with the dates of the General Conference. I would encourage you to consider this practice as well. Prayer has the power to change things. And I'd ask you to pray for the church. And if you're not sure what to pray, pray that God's will would be done. That we might be a witness to the world as we seek to truly be one with God, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world, no exceptions. It's a tough word, that word, all. It would be enough, I would think, to pray that we might be one in ministry with our immediate families. Or one in ministry with our church community. Even one in ministry with our country. But it's a pretty clear word, all. It reminds me of Jesus' own words in the Great Commission in which He says that we are to go into all the world, to make disciples of all nations. And when you start thinking about all, it can mess with you a little bit. I mean, if we're to be one in ministry to all the world, don't you think that a child in the city of Tbilisi, in the Republic of Georgia, matters just as much as a child in the city of Decatur, in the state of Georgia. If it's true that we're to be one in ministry to all the world, don't you think it's the case that a 35-year-old mother with a 6-year-old child and a 3-year-old child in Malawi matters just as much as my own spouse my own children. You start thinking about all and it messes with you. I don't want to mess with you too much. It's still a little early in the day. But the business of spreading our care, spreading our ministry worldwide is a pretty daunting thought. It's not easy to serve in a denomination that speaks many different languages It makes doing complicated church work difficult, as you might imagine, with translators and headsets and all the rest. It's not easy to do the work as our Honduras team just did of making relationships with people who are very different from you who may not speak the same language. If I'm honest, it's difficult to make relationships with people across the street, let alone across the world. 
And yet scripture's clear. When Jesus stood on that level place, as the writer of the Gospel of Luke recounts, when he announced this good news, he didn't put any provisos in it. He did not include any exceptions. He did not say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God as long as you live in the United States and or have a job. He didn't say, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled just as long as the food pantry at the church is open. He did not say, Blessed are you who weep now, but do your best to suck it up. The writer Kurt Vonnegut was famously an atheist, but he asked some good questions along the way. Speaking of this passage in Scripture, this famous passage known as the Beatitudes, he said this. He said, for some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes, but often with tears in their eyes, they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. Now, of course, that's Moses, not Jesus, he says. I haven't heard one of them demand that the Beatitudes be posted anywhere. He said, can you imagine? Blessed are the merciful in a courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. Give me a break. Now, that's kind of harsh. But if you think this is harsh stuff coming from Kurt Vonnegut, you are going to want to hang on to your seat when you hear what Jesus has to say about it. Jesus could have stopped with, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the lowly. But he goes further. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you and all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. It's pretty harsh coming from the Son of God. It's difficult for me to hear coming from my Savior. Because if I'm honest, I desperately want Him to like me. I think about how Jesus feels about all of this, and I'm reminded of this line in the musical Hamilton that I think about sometimes. As Alexander Hamilton thinks about his own life, the remarkable circumstances that led him to be such a remarkable character, and he says, I imagine death so much it feels like a memory. And maybe that sounds macabre, Maybe it's kind of a downer, but like, don't we all wonder about death every now and again? I imagine it sometimes, like not how it's going to happen, but what it will be like when I face the judgment of God. I wonder what it will be like when I stand before God. You ever wonder this? I mean, I know God loves me, and I know that there is no sin of mine that is strong enough that God will not forgive it. But I deeply desire to move away from sin in my own life. The problem isn't just avoiding temptation, though that is difficult enough. Being one with God and one with each other and one in ministry to all the world involves acknowledging that when Jesus says, Woe to you who are laughing now, it may be the case that I am not laughing at the moment, but in the grand scheme of things, I am doing okay. 
When he says, woe to you when all speak well of you, he doesn't mean that an attaboy is bad news so much as he means that chasing the spotlight, chasing compliments your whole life, trying to live so that people like you just for the sake of liking you, that's an awfully small way to live your life. I suspect at the end of things that God will remind me that I spent an inordinate amount of time doing just that. And what's more, and maybe the most damning, when Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation, I have this sneaking suspicion that he might be talking about me. He might be talking about most of us. I mean, I don't feel rich, I don't feel wealthy very often, except for the times that I might be in a developing country surrounded by people struggling to make ends meet. It happens a lot less in Decatur, Georgia than it seems to happen in other places. I guess what I mean is that when I get to the pearly gates, I have trouble imagining that Jesus is going to give me a pass because I tell him that, well, I was house poor. I don't mean to be a killjoy. I just think if we're going to be people who take the Bible seriously, we ought to take it seriously. Even when it says things we don't like. The pastor, James Howell, says that the biggest sea change that he has seen in 38 years of ordained ministry is this. When I began, he says, the highest possible compliment someone could pay me regarding my sermon was, Pastor, you stepped on my toes today. Nowadays, he said, nobody ever thanks me for stepping on toes. Instead, the highest praise that many feel they might offer me is to say, Pastor, I agree with you. Do you see the shift? shift? He says, for most of Christian history, people came to church to get fixed, to be corrected, to straighten out what's gone awry in the soul, and now we blithely think we have it all figured out and we want a preacher who echoes back to our pet thoughts. Now that's a little more specific than I probably would have gotten. But there's this sense that it's almost as if we would prefer that nothing had to change, or at least that our own biases and preferences would be confirmed. But the message of Scripture is that everything changes when Jesus enters the equation, when Jesus is involved. I mean, just read, just look at this passage from 1 Corinthians that we read this morning. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our proclamation has been in vain. Your faith has been in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we've hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul writes. The first fruits of those who have died. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, 
If it is true that Christ was raised from the dead, it means that he is no longer dead, which itself means that nothing is the same anymore. Nothing can stop us if we are willing to try. There is no situation. There is no situation large or small, no entrenchment, no matter how dug in, no infirmity, no, no matter how severe, if we are willing to be faithful, that can keep us from fulfilling our purpose as human beings, which is to love God and to love one another, to be one with God and one with each other and one in ministry to all the world. This is the nature of the resurrection. Now maybe you're here today feeling like death warmed over. I have felt like that before. I know that as I have prepared for general conference, there have been times when I understood what Lin-Manuel Miranda meant when he said that he had imagined death so much it felt like a memory. In fact, the first time I typed this paragraph in my sermon, as I wrote, as I have prepared for general conference, my fingers accidentally migrated to write, as I have prepared for death. I get it. And yet the promise of the resurrection, if we will accept it, is that nothing and nobody are too far gone for God. No church, no denomination, no individual is too far gone for God. And so if it is the case, that we are called to be one with God, one, in, uh, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world, then like, let's do it. Like, let's actually be in ministry. I don't know what that looks like for you. It probably looks as many ways as there are people in the room, but I would remind you that no matter where you are coming from or what drags you down, one of the most consistent messages in all of Scripture is that nothing is impossible with God. Friends, it's the case that all is an awfully big group of people. But all happens to be exactly the number of people that we believe fall within the family of God. And so let us go forth as a part of that family to do the work that Jesus calls blessed, so that we might be one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at that heavenly banquet. Dear God, let it be. Amen.